Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, Women of Wonder. During this series, we'll dive into the stories of some of the courageous and obedient women of the Bible to see how we can each learn, grow, and be challenged to put our faith into action. We hope you find this podcast meaningful. We love to hear how God is touching people's lives. Just go to our website at www.valleybrook.cc, select Contact Us, and send us an email. So church, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this series that we have started today. Uh, we've been uh, praying about this and planning this from uh, last fall. It's called Women of Wonder. And, uh, you know, Scripture, the Bible, is filled with women who have accomplished amazing things, who changed the world, who spread the good news of Jesus. We read the stories of these women who had dramatic, life-changing conversions and who took daring steps of faith. Women who courageously risked their, life, their lives for God and who were faithful and obedient to God in times when it would have been easier to turn and run away. So during this series, we're going to dive into their stories, just a few, but we're going to look at, at what God can teach us about following him. And at the same time, we're going to ask uh, some ladies to come and share their story with us about how God has worked in their lives. And so today I've asked Misty Connolly if she would come and share a story. So would you give her a warm Valley Brook welcome? It's probably a bad sign that I'm crying already. <laughs> Dan, that wasn't cool. You got to warn me before you do that. Uh, good morning, friends. Good morning. I have two friends. Awesome. Thank you. Good morning, friends. Thank you. A few weeks ago, Clark asked me to share my testimony, and I've been struggling a great deal with this. You know, how do you condense 30 years into only 10 minutes? You know, to be honest, it's difficult to share and to be vulnerable. But when God calls you to tell his story, how can you possibly say, I'm not ready? So friends, I'm not ready, but here I am. I don't believe that a testimony is my story or your story. A testimony is God's story. His plan for redemption is lived out in us. The purpose for sharing is so that we may share God's glory, grace, forgiveness, and love with others. Because there is no humanly way possible, for those of you who know me, no humanly way possible that I could stand up here without him today. My parents divorced when I was three years old, and I was six before I saw my father again. I grew up with my mother, and I was always the butt of the joke. They told me it was because I had such an easygoing disposition, and, but I now realize that it was because I was such an easy target. All families tease one another, they would say. Don't be so sensitive. We only say this because we love you. Everyone else is laughing. Why are you crying? You know, it meant that they loved me, right? And man, all I wanted out of life was to be loved. I have two brothers. My older brother wanted to be a wrestler when he grew up, you know, so he'd practice his moves on me. I never, I never cried. I never tattled. I, um, it, it was just, it was finally that brother-sister bond that I was craving. It didn't matter that it hurt. It didn't matter that I always, always end up in cuts and bruises and scrapes. It was bonding. It was love, or so I thought. In high school, William had a baby, and I, when I was 13, I made a comment that he didn't like. At the time, I was holding my six-month-old nephew. 
which I knew was the only thing that was stopping him from attacking me. He demanded that I put the baby down, but I clung to him, knowing that he was my shield. William became more aggressive, and I was backed into a corner. I looked around for someone, anyone, to intervene. That's when I saw my mom walking up to me. I was like, oh, safety. But I couldn't help but notice that as she was walking up to me, she went and looked me in the eyes. She walked up to me, she took the baby out of my arms, and she walked away. She said nothing, she did nothing. Um, the attack was swift and brutal, and even after he'd walked away, no one that was in the room said anything, did anything. I ran away, that, and when I came back that night, they were acting as if nothing had, nothing had happened. This was family. This was love. At least this is what they told me. I grew up a daddy's girl, not necessarily for my real father, but for my stepfather. He could do no wrong. But one day, that delusion came crashing down. From the ages of 12 to 15, I was sexually abused by the one man who was supposed to teach me how to love and what love was. Somehow he always managed to turn it back to me. He would weep and beg for forgiveness and beg for my silence and go on and on about how it would destroy my mom and the family if I said anything. You know, how could I possibly want to do that to my mom? You know, what good could possibly come out of that? You know, so I, it had to remain our little secret. I couldn't tell anyone. I couldn't let it hurt anyone. Growing up, God was never mentioned in my house, outside of in vain. Well, I did have an innate curiosity when it came to God, with no one to foster it, and all of my faculties diverted to just surviving. I never went after it. I never saw him as a need for survival. I struggled with why I was going through whatever trials I was experiencing, and I wondered how much more I would be able to take before I was unrecoverably broken. I was always told that I was a good girl, so why were all these bad things happening to me? There came a point where my thoughts weren't my own, my mind wasn't my own, and my body wasn't my own. At 15, I finally began to fight back, and that started a whole new round of mental and emotional abuse. I spent the entire last half of my childhood defiantly standing up saying, you can't break me. You can't break me. At the age of 18, my brother was looking for a roommate and I was looking for a way to get out of the house. So I took him up on it and I moved in. It turned out to be one of my gravest mistakes. He slowly slipped into a deep depression and he tried to self-medicate, turning himself into a violent, non-functioning alcoholic. You can't break me became my battle cry. I constantly challenged him and was always met with violent responses. Physical threats on my life became an almost daily reality. I went on this cycle for several months, always hiding the cuts and bruises. One January day, he threw me out of the house. I left that day and I never went back. I couch surfed for a while before I finally ended up in California with my dad and my stepmom. This relationship had never grown in a healthy way, and in their own way, I know they tried, but by the time I reached them, I was so tired of people telling me what I should be and telling me what I needed to change and what a disappointment I was. This ended one day when they'd finally had enough and they also threw me out of the house. During this time, my dad was working on a project with a young man from Connecticut. 
He hooked me up with this young guy, hoping that his diligence and his good nature would rub off on me. He didn't, but in a very different way than my dad was expecting. This young man was Aaron. Um, so after I, after I got kicked out of the house, I moved to Connecticut to continue my relationship with Aaron. And God really began to settle me into a real family. I became a Christian the moment I met my husband, and he began to open my eyes to the love of God. But I didn't become saved until almost a decade later. I spent a very long time playing Christian, but not really changing. Nothing in my heart changed, and nothing in my life said that I was changed. Two years ago, I had a very raw conversation with my sister-in-law. She saw the destruction that my sin was sowing, and she saw how bitter, angry, and hurt I was. My life wasn't in a good spot. My soul wasn't in a good spot. That night, after leaving her house, I drove and drove. Sitting in a parking lot, I was hurt. How dare she say these things? Did she not care that she was hurting my feelings? But there was an ever-constant push from God. I was being convicted. But Misty, she's right. Come to the cross. Nah, you can't break me. Then I got defensive. What did she know? She didn't have the upbringing that I did. She had loving parents, loving siblings. She didn't understand the pressures that I felt as a wife and a mother. But Misty, she's right. Come to the cross. Mm, you can't break me. Not today. Then I tried to reason with myself. She just simply didn't understand. She's not as insightful as everyone says she is. It doesn't matter that she was saying word for word things that Aaron had been telling me for years. I'd already convinced myself long ago that he was wrong too. Surely, if she just understood, she would come to a different conclusion. But Misty, she's right. Come to the cross. But you can't break me. Then I got angry. How dare she? Who does she think she is? I am a good person. I try to do the right thing. I, I'm nice to most people. I'm a good person. How dare she say that I'm a bad person, a sinner even? I don't need a savior. I'm doing perfectly fine, just on my own. I don't need it. But Misty, she's right. Come to the cross. You can't break me. Immediately after, Chris Tomlin's good, good father began to play on the radio. In that moment, God broke me. I sat and weeped in the parking lot for a long, long time. He had broken the unbreakable. That night, with the guidance of Aaron and Sarah ringing in my ears, I gave my life to Christ. I realized that I was just a whitewashed tomb, shiny on the outside, but dead and decaying on the inside. I realized how truly desperately I needed a savior, and that I could do nothing good on my own. I was hellbound, and there was no amount of things that I could do that would change that. I actually wasn't a good person. Go figure, Sarah was right. And I wasn't a good person. I was a very imperfect person who had a very perfect God. I finally listened. I went to the cross. Here I am. I'm not ready. Family is such an interesting concept. I spent years clinging to the hope of having a true family. I wanted a family to love me. Through Christ's sacrifice and God's love, I was given just that. Let me tell you guys about my family. Sarah Connolly, Erica Baldwin, Amber Seiler. These are the women who speak life into me. These are my best friends. 
They are the ones who choose to do life with me and are always there no matter what. These women are my sisters. Kathleen Connolly, Cynthia Poff, Diane Hermance. These women are the ones who are constantly there for me, always guiding me. They pray over me, and they have been through me with some, they have been through some of my darkest days, and they have served as lighthouses, directing me, directing me out, out of the dark, reminding me of God's love. They're also not afraid to reprimand me for God's glory. These women are my mothers. Nathan Connolly, Mike Baldwin, David Seiler, and Drew Wickman. These men tease me, oftentimes relentlessly. They look out for me, and they laugh at my expense. The main difference is they have taught me to laugh with them. They have stood up for me and shown me what a brother should really look like. Tim Connolly, Clark Poth, Rob Falassi. These are the men who I aspire to be like. They are quiet in their disposition, but their hearts are full of love. They have been a true model for me of what it looks like to go from, you can't break me, to, Lord, here I am, break me. They're my fathers. And of course, the one who started it all, my awesome husband and my three amazing kids, you guys. You guys are my people. You guys are my tribe. You are my true family. This is love. Not the bruises, not the scars, not the hurt, not the pain. This is God's love. Here I am, Lord. I'm ready. Would you join me as we pray over Misty? Just hold a hand toward her. Father God, we thank you for Misty, for her faith. Lord, we thank you that she let you break her in the way that we all need to be broken. Lord, we thank you that you've redeemed her life, that you've called her to you and that you've saved her. Lord, we thank you for all those who have also supported her along the way. And Lord, I thank you for, for anyone else who's struggling like her. I pray that you would help us be the family that we're supposed to be and love them to Jesus. So I ask for blessings on Misty. Thank you for her bravery to share this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you. Again, thank you, Misty. Thank you, uh, thank you all for supporting her and uh, being part of her family, the family of God, as we call it. So today we're going to go from a, a real uh, life story that you all can relate to to a, another real life story that, that may be a little difficult to relate to. We're going to look at an unlikely heroine from Scripture. Uh, we meet this woman just after Moses has died and the nation of Israel is perched on the doorstep of the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Now, before entering the promised land, um, they have to deal with something. And the reality is they have to confront their enemies, the Amorites. And the first city that they would come to right across the Jordan River would be the city of Jericho. And this is what we read in Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. He said, go look over the land. He said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. Why would the spies of Israel go and stay with a prostitute? Think about this. Once inside the city, the ideal place for lodging would be an inn or a house on the city wall. 
From there, they could assess the city's defenses. Um, and a good way to avoid arousing any suspicion or attracting any undue attention would to be find the most seamy red light district where everyone would understand the need for discretion. Their search led them to Rahab, a prostitute. She was prosperous enough to have a house in a prime spot on the wall of the city. And both she and her business were probably well-known in Jericho. This was an ideal situation for the spies. She would have opened her door to them without any question about who they were. In her business, the strictest confidentiality was essential. She would have welcomed them and invited them inside quickly, just as she would do with all of her clients. Now, there's no record of what Rahab's conversation was initially with the two spies from Israel. But it's what Rahab does next that makes her a heroine. Somehow the spies have been recognized. Somehow they've been followed and traced to Rahab's house. And so the king of Jericho sends messengers, probably troops, to go and capture the spies. And they go to Rahab's house, and this is what they say. They say, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But Rahab has taken those two spies and she's hidden them. And this is what she says. Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left and I don't know which way they went. So go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But actually what she has done, she's taken them up to the roof and she's hidden them under stalks of flax that were there probably for that very purpose. So the men that came looking for the spies, set out on their pursuit of them to roads that led to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone, the gates were shut. Rahab decides to save the spies from Israel. By doing so, she is committing an act of treason punishable by death. She's committed treason against the king of Jericho. She's committed treason against the people of Jericho. And she's risked her life. Now, it's interesting to think about it. When you consider why somebody becomes a prostitute, they do it out of desperation. Someone becomes a prostitute when there's no other choice to, but to survive by selling one's body. So somewhere in Rahab's life, she had to make that awful choice. And then for years, she went around about this degrading work that meant that she was used by men and hated by women. She had no place in society, but it would appear that she was successful. In this chapter, we learned that her house was part of the city wall. This location would have been a, a prime location for any business, and so it had to come at a cost so we can assume that business was good for Rahab. We can also assume that if she turned the spies, if she turned the spies in, there would have been a financial reward. But by protecting the spies, not only was she willing to leave the reward, she was also willing to leave her wealth behind. Her decision to protect the spies is what makes her a heroine to Israel and to us. As we read a little further, we discover that she had a conversion by both fear and by faith. So in the following conversation, we learn that Rahab and all the residents of Jericho were afraid 
of the God of the Israelites. This is what she says. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Shahon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. We have heard of it. Our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. I want you to notice Rahab's faith was accompanied by fear. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, uh, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Rahab's case, fear is partly what motivated her faith. She had heard powerful evidence of the Lord's supremacy over Egypt. She understood that it was the Lord's might, not the military might of Israel, that had triumphed over two fearsome kings And she understood. She understood something about the Lord's sovereignty because the story of how Israel had traveled for 40 years and the wilderness and God had provided for them had gotten back to her. Hers was a healthy kind of fear. It had convinced her that the Lord was indeed the true Lord. As scripture says, People shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, God, and I will declare your greatness. That's precisely the kind of testimony that must have brought Rahab to faith. So this healthy fear or respect of the Lord drew her to believe that all she had heard about the Lord was true. Sue Richards writes this, through Rahab's conversion with conversation with these two spies, we discover how familiar the pagan nations were with the story of the Israelites and the miracles performed by God on their behalf. Further, it's clear that the stories were believed to be entirely true and that the citizens of the powerful city of Jericho were terrified when they learned that the Israelites were camped just outside the city. Now, it seems amazing that this woman of ill repute would be the only resident of Jericho whose heart was not hardened. But instead, she opened not only her home to the spies, but she opened her heart to the God that they served and whom she in turn learned to serve. So Rahab strikes a deal with the spies. In effect, she says, listen, I saved your lives Now, will you save my family and my life from the attack that Israel is planning on Jericho? And they agree. Providentially, her house is built into the wall of the city and it has a window in the wall. So that night, she lets down a rope that she happens to have for the spies to climb down and escape. And the spies go back and they report to Joshua everything that's happened. 
Now, several chapters later in the book of Joshua, you read the story of the battle of Jericho in which God, not the Israelites, God destroys the entire city and all of its inhabitants except Rahab and her family. And we read this in chapter 6. Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to get Jericho. And then as a caveat, we read, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. She lives among the Israelites to this day. So Rahab believed in God and she was saved by God and by the Israelites and she lived with them for the rest of her life. So what do we learn from this amazing woman and her faith? We learn about a faith demonstrated by deeds. You see, even before she met the spies, Rahab had heard the stories of the God of Israel and what he had done. And she believed this God. She already was professing faith in this God that she had heard about. But here's the deal. She didn't leave Jericho and cross the Jordan River with her family to go to the Israelites and become part of them for a couple of reasons. Number one, she was a single woman. She was an Amorite. She would be viewed as an enemy. They wouldn't let her in. And because she didn't have a husband, they wouldn't have anybody that would provide for her and they wouldn't want her to come apart. And once they learned she was a prostitute, all bets are off. So if she went to the Israelites, they wouldn't accept her. But if she went to the Israelites and they didn't accept her, guess what? Because she had betrayed the Amorites, they wouldn't let her back in. So she was stuck. That's why she didn't leave Jericho. Despite believing in the God of the Israelites, she didn't leave. So when the spies showed up, and she learned who they were and what they were doing. It makes sense. She says, uh, you know, I'm going to let them in. You know, I, I'm certain when she took them in and learned that they didn't want to use her, but instead they showed her respect, that they must have caught her attention. And whether they told her what they were doing there or she learned about it when the king's messengers knocked on the door, it doesn't matter. What does matter is that she demonstrated enough faith in God that she thought quickly and she acted quickly and she saved the lives of the spies. In fact, Scripture suggests that she quickly hid the men when the king's messengers got there and knocked on the door and inquired about them. Uh, the speed and ingenuity of her scheme to hide them suggests that she was experienced with this kind of thing. Think about it. There were stalks of flax carefully laid out in the roof to hide people. She had probably had to hide a man from a jealous wife. Rahab also had a rope long enough to go from her window all the way down to the ground. No doubt she had arranged some escapes before for totally different reasons. But here's the deal. Rahab had to decide if she really believed in this God with her life. Would she put her life on the line 
And she did. Her faith was no longer a thought. It was no longer a theory. It was no longer a feeling. It was something that was living and active. Now, some people like to point out that Rahab's actions involved telling a lie. She was a new believer. But here's the deal. The lie isn't the point of the story. Scripture doesn't commend her lie. It doesn't applaud her ethics. She's commended and remembered for her faith in God. You know, in the New Testament, Rahab is honored for her faith that wasn't theoretical. She's remembered as an example of what it means to live by faith. It means to believe in and to follow the Lord and to stake your life on what you believe about God. In in the book of Hebrews, we read this. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 is called the Hall of Fame of Faith. Why? Because in it, it catalogs all these acts of faith of our spiritual forefathers and our spiritual foremothers. Because of her faith, Rahab the prostitute is held up to us as an example of what it means to live by faith. It means it's not going to be just a theory. It's not just something you're going to give lip service to. It's something you're going to live your life by, no matter the cost. So because of her faith, Rahab the prostitute is held up to us as an example. James, the half-brother of Jesus, also saw her example of righteousness. And this is what he said about her. He said, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? And just to make sure no one gets the idea that he's saying we're saved by doing good deeds, he adds this in the next verse, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He's saying it's not just deeds, it's faith with deeds. You can't separate them. One scholar writes this. Rahab showed her faith in God's promises by helping the spies escape. She tied a scarlet thread to her window and it signaled her salvation. And this scholar notes that Rahab's faith in God and her action in in behalf of the spies of Israel is a model for Christians today of what it looks like to have faith and works. So here's the big idea. If we have faith in God, that faith will determine how we live our lives. Faith without deeds is dead. Faith with deeds is alive. True faith will determine how we live our lives. But there's one more thing that we need to know about Rahab. She is an example of the truth that God can redeem anybody's life. That God can use any person regardless of what has ever taken place in their past. She's a life used by God. So there's one more verse in the Bible that reveals how God redeemed Rahab's life. And it tells us a lot about what happened in her life after Jericho. In Joshua 6, remember, uh, we last saw that she went to live with the Israelites. But from this last scripture that I'm going to read in in a second, uh, we learn that she left her life of prostitution. 
she converted to Judaism. She married a Jewish man, and they had a family. They had a son. Now, how do I know all this? Because this verse that we're going to look at is in one of those, scriptures, those sections of scriptures that you and I tend to, like, go bored. Our eyes glaze over as soon as we, we see it. Sometimes I skip over them, okay? Um, it's a genealogy. It's a family tree. You know, I feel a yawn coming on already, right? Um, but it's not just anybody's family tree. Yes, it's Rahab's family tree. But it's somebody else's family tree. It starts with Abraham, the one that God made a promise to that he would be the father of nations. And then it goes 11 generations to Rahab. And from Rahab, some more generations to King David. And from King David, some more generations to Jesus, the Son of God. So here's what I want you to know. That the story of Rahab is so powerful because in this verse, let's look at it. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And then it goes on. But do you see how huge this is? A prostitute was the great, great grandmother of King David. A prostitute is in the family tree, a direct predescendant of Jesus. You know, when you're so down and out that you have to resort to prostitution to survive, your self-worth has to be close to nothing. But the story of Rahab is that God can and will use anyone to accomplish his purposes. The story of Rahab is that there is nothing that you and I could ever do that would make God not love us. The story of Rahab is that you and I are valuable people to God and he desires to redeem our lives and for us to become his children, for us to become daughters of God and sons of God. The story of Rahab is that God redeemed her life and he can redeem yours and mine too. Look, I don't know what your life has been like. I don't know what you've done and I don't know what's been done to you that makes you feel ashamed, that makes you feel unworthy. But I know this. The God who made the heavens and earth, the God who sent his son to earth to bring you to him, this God sees you as a valuable person that he loves and this God wants you to live in the identity that you are his daughter and you are his son. God tells us that there is nothing that can separate you from his love. He loves you. You don't have any choice about that. He loves you. He loves you. You may not accept that love, but he still loves you. He wants you to know that what's been done to you that fills you with shame or what you've done that makes you feel guilt and shame does not have to be your identity. If something's been done to you that is not your identity, that's not how he sees you. In fact, he wants to deliver you from that shame. If you've done something wrong, you can confess it to God and he will forgive you. 
if you've done something wrong. He says, I'll forgive you and you're free from guilt. You're free from shame. If something has happened to you, he will deliver you from that shame, that pain. It all starts when we tell him we believe in him and we want to follow him. And he will redeem our lives. He'll take us into his family as we decide to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and follow us. And he'll make and follow him. And he'll make us a daughter, a son, a child of God. He'll welcome us in. And our sins are forgiven. And he'll begin the process of healing the hurts and the pain and the scars in your life. As soon as you believe, in Jesus, he begins that process of redemption. He saves you forever. Now, for some of you, if you've experienced this redemption or if you want to experience this redemption from your guilt, from your shame, and you tell Jesus you believe in him and you want to follow him, some of you are going to experience that redemption and faster than you could ever imagine. For others of you, because you have lived with abuse and shame and scars for a long time, you're redeemed. It's just going to take you a little while to embrace it and to heal. So don't give up. Look, this is our commitment to you as a church. If you've been hurt by someone or if you've done something you're ashamed of, our commitment to you is to help you find a, a Christian counselor who can help you work through whatever you need to work through. But here's a second commitment, and it's actually more important than the one I just mentioned. If, you're an abu if you are in an abusive relationship, if you're in an abusive situation, if your life is at risk, I don't care if it's physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. I don't care what kind of abuse it is. Here's our commitment to you. We will help you get out of that situation and be safe. We will do whatever it takes. We will walk with you through that. That's our commitment. So if that's going on and you need to talk to someone, talk to me or a leader. To my brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of this body, if, if you feel called to help somebody through that, also come talk to me or a leader. Because we're family and we help one another together. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.